Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. There are few certainties that we can hold on to in this life. We are born, and we die. Somewhere between those two events, we have to pay taxes. We learn that our mothers were always right, and we are going to need a jacket that day, which leads into another certainty, one usually driven by headstrongness, known as that little thing called Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. So prepare accordingly. There's another trope to add to that pile of beliefs, though. One I've found to be truer than others, perhaps because I live in the smallest of states, which, more often than not, makes Rhode Island feel like a small town as opposed to a small state. And that belief is this. Small towns are good at keeping secrets, especially dark ones. Now, the story I'm telling you today isn't based in Rhode Island, but in a small town called Fayetteville, located at the bottom of the borders of West Virginia. Our story takes place in 1945, that year of miracles and abominations both. And in the town of little old Fayetteville, at the end of one of the most historic years on record, there was a family. The Sauter family. Ten children in total, born to George and Jenny Sauter. Except, come the morning of Christmas Day 1945, there would only be five Sauter children left alive. Or so they say. Small towns are good at keeping secrets, especially dark ones. And when it comes to a town this small and a story this hauntingly strange and dark, you can also count on this certainty. Everyone has an opinion about what really happened to the Sauter children on Christmas Eve, 1945. But all we know for certain is no one can say with any certainty what it is that happened. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. tell you the story of the Sauter children, I need to make one thing very clear. This, as far as the cases that we've discussed here at Dark as Hell, this is a real head-scratcher. Not just because of the strangeness of our story, no, but because similar to last week's case surrounding the disappearance of the Fort Worth trio, this is a story that has also lost many explicit details due to that thing called time. The events of that Christmas Eve into Christmas Day, night, they took place 75 years ago after all. Research has since become muddled, sources have since died, held the FBI actually purged its files surrounding the case in 1999, only 54 years after the fact. That 
interesting factoid in and of itself only adds to the scratching of heads that we'll find ourselves doing today. Considering that this is a story about a family, it only makes sense to start with the beginning of the family, which took place in 1895 with the birth of one Giorgio Sudo in the town of Tula in Sardinia of Italy. As of 2004, there were only 1,664 residents of Tula, so I quite honestly can't begin to imagine what the tiny town looked like back in the 1800s. Sardinia, though, the region Tula is located in, that's a different story. Sardinia as a whole is unique. It's smaller than its sister Sicily, but not by much, and is one of the 20 regions of Italy. And that's where things get interesting with this particular island. Article 116 of the Italian Constitution affords five regions of Italy what's known as home rule. Home rule, by definition, is, quote, government of a colony, dependent country, or region by its own citizen. For example, think of the relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland, or even the UK and Wales if you want to use season two of The Crown to help better form your own understanding of this. This status was granted to Sardinia, along with Sicily, Trentino Alto Adige, Austa Valley, and Friuli Venezia Giulia. The thing that these five regions have in common is their rather unique histories, in that these five areas of Italy are uniquely bound to other European countries, which have created dialects, languages, and cultures that are distinctly different from Italy's own. Trentino Alto Adige was once part of the Austrian Empire. Aosta Valley has deep ties to France and even adopted modern French as its official language in 1538, three years before France itself did so. Friuli Venezia Giulia has dabbles of Slavic history within its own, and of course Sicily, with its storied history that includes Spanish, French, German, and Arabic influence, has created a melting pot all of its own. And so too is Sardinia truly an island unto itself, a microcontinent as some scholars have come to see it with Tunisia to the south and the French island of Corsica to the north, Sardinia even has its own indigenous language that is considered equal to Italian. Now, what the hell does this Italian history lesson have to do with a wartime American mystery? Well, as I said earlier, the town of Tula in Sardinia was the birthplace of one Giorgio Sudo, and Giorgio Sudo is the birth name of one of our characters in today's story, George Sodder. If you have any knowledge of the process of arriving at Ellis Island, you'll know the long-standing practice officials use when immigrants crossed onto the island and were almost immediately told that their names were too foreign, too complicated, too other. Many, many cultural ties born via a name were lost during the years of Ellis Island because those arriving on America's shore were forced to relinquish their birth names 
in order to gain their new title and lives as Americans. Such was the case with Giorgio Sudo. But it's George Sauter's arrival at Ellis Island and how he came to be on that gatekeeping island of dreams that brings us to the first oddity of this already odd story. It was in 1908 that Giorgio became George on Ellis Island, and he was only just 13 years old when he arrived. Accompanying him was his older brother, whose name has never been made public. And as soon as the two passed through immigration and cleared customs, this older brother turned about face and returned back to Italy, back to their island of Sardinia. George, later in life, made it a habit to never speak of his life back in Sardinia and never actually disclosed why it was he left Italy in what now seemed like such strange circumstances. So, what to make of this? The year was 1908, and World War I hadn't even started, so it's Hard to believe a worried mother, Sudo, wanted to get her young son out of the country to avoid his being drafted. One of the first mass Italian immigrations was admittedly taking place because of poverty concerns, but it should be noted that between 1906 and 1909, the economy was doing pretty beautifully, actually. The lira was so stabled, it was considered, quote, premium on gold. And if the Sudo family was making their first moves to immigrate as a whole to America, why send their 13-year-old son and then leave him there alone? One of the biggest points of interest in Sardinian history at the time was the concept of the region's banditry. Sardinian banditry dated back to 1477, when the first documented kidnapping for ransom took place. And I should make it clear here that Sardinian banditry doesn't necessarily equate to Southern Italy's history of organized crime or the organized crime families that originated from the region. It's one of those instances where it's kind of same, same, but different, but we'll get to that later. In the beginning of the 1900s, banditry was more so, quote, connected with clashes between clans which were interspersed with truces endorsed by civil and religious authorities. Banditry took on a darker meaning during the subsequent years as poverty rose, and kidnapping for ransom once again became a popular means of banditry. It was in 1894 that the mainland of Italy finally took notice of the banditry taking place throughout Sardinia, because in 1894, the most infamous Bardana took place. A Bardana was a type of, quote, armed expedition to plunder a village and strip wealthy landowners. During the night of November 13th through the 14th, 1894, a group of a hundred horsemen went to the commune of Tortoli. They besieged the house of the wealthy Vittorio de Pau, killed a servant who had shot at them and invaded the house whose inhabitants, it should be noted, had barricaded themselves inside of an attic. Seven carabinieri failed to stop the raid, and they only killed one out of a hundred of the bandits. It was after this evening of bloodshed that the prime minister of the day, Francesco Crispi, called for inquiries into 
basically just what the fuck was going on in Sardinia to cause such a stir. Armed forces from the Italian mainland were sent to the independent island in order to, and here I am quoting, eradicate the problem. Because bringing in armed forces from a government separate from your own during times of civil unrest, yeah, that always seems to go so well. By the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, 197 fugitives and 77 police officers had been reportedly killed in Sardinia. The final decade of the 1800s was said to be especially bloody, with banditry and bardanas taking place frequently and almost always resulting in robbery stemming from dreams of revenge. Even after the military was brought in and meant to intervene, the bloodshed continued. In 1907, a disamistade, a feud, resulted in 20 murders in the town of Orcosolo. 1907, of course, being the year before Giorgio Sudo would travel to America and become George Sauter. Now, we have no idea historically accurate or otherwise, why exactly 13-year-old George made his journey to America and became the only pseudo to stay in this brave new world? Had the unrest of the island scared his mother into sending him away? Had the pseudo family been caught up as victims in the Bardanas? Was there no one left besides George and his unnamed older brother? What reason could George have had about effectively going silent, reticent to ever divulge his first 13 years as a Sardinian? Your guess is as good as mine. But from the moment that Giorgio Sudo became George Sudo, Sodder, it could have been as if the previous 13 years had never happened. Certainly, as far as George seemed to be concerned, They simply hadn't. Alone in America, 13-year-old George made his way eventually to Pennsylvania. The railroad industry was booming and he was able to find work as a gopher, you know, carrying water, supplies, and other necessities to older men who were actually working on the railroad for just then. He stayed in Pennsylvania for a few years, though we don't know how many, before he eventually moved to West Virginia. In a town called Smithers, he found work again. And this time, employed as a driver, he also had stability too. West Virginia seemed to call to George, and Smithers in particular seemed to be a good fit for the hardworking, ambitious young man. He moved on from his job as a driver after another few years and took on his biggest challenge yet starting his own trucking company. The company started out as a dirt hauling company, connecting with construction businesses where George's men would collect and then transport fill dirt to sites. From fill dirt, the company moved onto coal transportation, which made sense given what a boon it was to the West Virginian economy, what with so many coal mines in the region. Later, George would add freight and other cargo transportation to his company's services. One day, though, businessman George realized that there was more to life than coal and cargo. 
He walked into a local shop in Smithers, one called The Music Box and owned by a family with the last name of Cipriani. They too had immigrated from Italy years before, and while chatting with Mr. Cipriani, George was introduced to another member of the family, their daughter, Jenny Cipriani. The two hit it off, and by 1923, the two were married. After they married, George and Jenny relocated to Fayetteville, just about a half an hour away from Smithers. Fayetteville is known to have a large Italian immigrant population, and things were going well for the little town. The mining industry was doing great things for its economy. The couple moved into a nice two-story timber frame house just a bit outside of the main hubbub of town. A large house for the time, built to home what would be their growing family. And a growing family it was. Between 1923 and 1943, the Sauter family grew from just George and Jenny to George and Jenny plus 10. 10 children in 20 years. The Sauter children should be introduced, and they were these. There was John, their firstborn son and oldest of all 10 Sauter children, followed one year later by their son, Joe. There was their eldest daughter, Marion, born about three years later. Three years after Marion came another son. This one, he was named George Jr. And about two years later came son, Maurice, who was followed another two years later by the second Sauter daughter, Martha. Martha was followed by Louis three years later. One year later came daughter Jenny, named after their mother. And the remaining two Sauter children were both girls. Betty, who was born three years after Jenny. And finally, little Sylvia, the baby of the family. The Sauter family, they were nothing short of a force of their own. George's business grew prosperous as the years went on, and later, the family would be described by a local county magistrate as, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around. By now, the United States had entered into World War II, and the Sauter's second oldest son, Joe, he had enlisted into the army in order to serve. The Sauters were proud, and none more so than George himself. He was a man of strong convictions and strong opinions as well. It's an interesting juxtaposition to look back at it now. George Sauter made no bones about where he stood on issues ranging from current events and small town happenings, yet he refused to speak about his first 13 years of life back on the island of Sardinia. Maybe it was because of whatever happened in his past that led him to have such harsh opinions about the fascist in power of Italy at the time, Benito Mussolini. It was said that George strongly believed in American patriotism, particularly as an immigrant. Once you had immigrated, you were American through and through. He was a vocal critic of Mussolini during the war years, unafraid to share his dislike and even hatred for El Duce. So unafraid at times that it was reported George had alienated other members of the Fayetteville Italian immigrant community that he and his family were a part of. 
as the father of a son stationed overseas fighting against Mussolini, any alienation he caused by speaking out against Mussolini didn't seem to concern George. Il Duce was deposed and executed in Italy on April 28, 1945, and Hitler followed him in death two days later in his bunker in Berlin. Months later, the war had officially ended in September of 1945. However, there was still much to do, much to clean up, much to salvage, much to revitalize, much still to come to terms with in regards to the horrors the war, and especially Hitler, had inflicted on Europe throughout the Holocaust. As the holidays approached, Joe made it clear to his parents that he was going to be spending them in Europe, still stationed across the ocean to assist in the post-war efforts. So it was then that George and Jenny Sauter prepared to have just nine of their ten children home for the holidays that Christmas of 1945. The war was over. The holidays were beginning. Who could have asked for a happier, more peaceful Christmas time? Or at least, it was supposed to be a happy and peaceful Christmas. But that's not at all what happened. Come the early hours of December 25th, 1945. Christmas Eve at the Sauter home was coming to a close, but the Sauter children were determined to hold on to just a few more hours of that Christmas Eve magic. Marion, the eldest daughter, had surprised some of her younger sisters, 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty, with some gifts, toys that she had bought for the girls at her job at the Five and Dime store in downtown Fayetteville. The younger girls were enthralled, and they begged their mother to let them stay up just a little longer so they could continue playing. Jenny agreed on a few conditions. Since it was already 10 p.m., she told the girls that they could stay up for as long as it took their older brothers, 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis, to bring the family cows in for the evening and to feed the family chickens. George Sr., 23-year-old John, and 16-year-old George Jr. were already in bed, asleep after spending the day working around the house and on the family land. Once Jenny laid out her stipulations and saw the boys off to do their remaining chores, she took two-year-old Sylvia and went to bed herself. That should have been the end of the evening. At 12.30 a.m., half an hour into Christmas Day 1945, the telephone rang. The phone was located downstairs where George and Jenny's bedroom was, so Jenny hurried to answer it before it woke baby Sylvia or any of the other children. At the other end of the line was a woman. She had a voice that Jenny didn't recognize, and she didn't share her own name, but this woman did ask to speak to a man. A man who didn't live at the Sauter home, and whose name Jenny also wasn't familiar with. The name that this woman asked for has never been shared publicly, I should note. In the background, Jenny could hear the clinking of glasses and loud, raucous laughter, no doubt a sign of the holiday. Perplexed, Jenny told the woman that she clearly had the wrong number. 
and the woman only laughed. A laugh Jenny would later describe as being, quote, weird. Not knowing what to make of any of it, Jenny simply hung up on the woman and made her way to return to bed. Before she did, though, she noticed that various lights outside of her and George's bedroom were still on. Marion appeared to have fallen asleep on the couch, so Jenny took care to be quiet around her eldest daughter as she investigated further. She discovered that the shades hadn't been drawn, and the front door wasn't locked either. All odd occurrences in the household because these small tasks were, as the Sunday Gazette Mail put it, quote, all chores the well-minding children did before bed. Perhaps the children had taken themselves up to their beds in the attic before Marion had fallen asleep, assuming their older sister would take care of the quick nighttime routine herself. Jenny may have mused about it further as she closed the curtains and locked the door, chalking the strange phone call up to being a bizarre Christmas prank call and allowing the fact the children hadn't finished their nightly chores because, well, it was Christmas. In just a few minutes, she was already back to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny woke with a start. There'd been a noise on the roof, loud enough to wake her from the doze that she had been settling into. She later described it as, quote, something hit the roof, like a rubber ball. It rolled and hit the ground with a thump. Her own heart probably thumping, she listened intently, waiting to hear if there would be another noise. After a few moments, there wasn't. So once again, more perturbed than anything, Jenny went back to sleep. But not for long. Barely half an hour later, Jenny woke for the third time. Except this time, it wasn't what she heard that woke her. It was what she smelled. Smoke. Thick plumes of smoke were roiling under the bedroom door, and Jenny raced to the adjacent room, which was George's home office, and where the telephone was located. The entire room was ablaze. Jenny started screaming. Awakened by her mother, Marion ran to her mother's voice. Upon realizing what was going on, she grabbed baby Sylvia and sprinted out into the freezing December night. George and Jenny were racing through the house, trying to rouse their other children. Jenny stood at the bottom of the attic stairs where the older, other children were supposed to be sleeping. As she told the Sunday Gazette Mail, Jenny said she, quote, yelled and yelled, and finally, two boys, John and George Jr., came stumbling down. Their hair was singed by the flames. Seeing that Jenny was handling the corralling of their children, George Sr. also raced outside after his daughter Marion. In bare feet, he ran over to a water barrel near the house, thinking he would fill a bucket and start to try to control the blaze. Except the December air had frozen the water in the barrel into solid ice. He turned, probably hoping to utilize all of his sons to help him, but then he looked again, counted again. Of all the solders who were standing outside, there were five missing. Five children missing. Maurice, Martha, Louis, 
Jenny and Betty. They weren't standing with their older siblings. Where were the rest of the children? It was in horror that the family realized five of the Sauter children were still inside the blazing house. What George had started as a preserve as much of the house as we can mission immediately changed into a rescue mission. Except this rescue mission met almost every obstacle, challenge, or outright complication that could have been imagined that night. Allegedly, George Sr. tried to scale a wall up the side of the house to break an attic window. Some say he managed to cut his arm in the process. The next attempt to reach the children in the attic revolved around a ladder that George always, always, as this was something he was later fervent about, kept on the side of the house. And yet, the ladder had vanished. It couldn't be found anywhere. In in another bid, George, George, and John all turned and looked to the family cars. They had two trucks that they used throughout their land, and they'd used them earlier in the day as well as the day prior. Except now, as they raced to get in the cars and drive them against the house to climb on top and reach the attic, one car wouldn't turn on, and neither would the other, despite having worked perfectly earlier in the day. While her brothers and father tried to reach the attic from the outside of the burning house, Marion had taken off down the street to a neighbor's house to use their phone, since there was obviously no way to get back into the house and use their own. She begged them to phone at the Fayetteville Fire Department, and the neighbor did, but to no avail. Their phone, for whatever reason, couldn't connect to the night operator on that night. A passing vehicle had seen the fire and hurried to a nearby tavern, trying to connect to the fire department themselves. But for whatever reason, the tavern's phone was allegedly out of order that night. The Good Samaritan driver then headed into the town center, where, eventually, they were able to alert the fire department and the chief at the time, a man named F.J. Morris, of the inferno on the Sodder's land sometime after 1 a.m., By then, though, it was too late. In roughly 45 minutes, the entire Sauter house had gone up in flames and come down in ash. Christmas Day 1945 dawned, and it was at about 8 a.m. that the Fayetteville Fire Department finally arrived, seven hours after Jenny Sauter's first screams rang through the house as she realized that the family home was on fire. By the time the volunteer firefighters arrived, they were met only with ash, a shell of a house, and a shell-shocked family. A word here about the Fayetteville Fire Department. If I haven't said it enough yet, the year was 1945, and World War I had only concluded in September. Many Many young men had been lost to the war, and there were still many others waiting to receive their orders to finally return home. That left an organization like the Volunteer Fire Department severely depleted in terms of manpower. And note that I said volunteer. 
As it was, the Fayetteville Fire Department was indeed a volunteer-based organization, though they were based out of the firehouse of Fayetteville, about 2.5 miles away from the Sauter House. As such, though, the protocols for the volunteer fire department were basically non-existent. Volunteers were typically contacted through a phone tree system, where one firefighter would get the news, they would call to another to alert them, and that next firefighter would call, and so on and so forth. It's a slow-moving process, and add to the fact the department was already understaffed, and it was Christmas Eve, so you have a recipe for not just disaster, but inaction. The fire chief, a man named F.J. Morris, made a particularly bold statement in the day or two after the fire and claimed that he hadn't been able to make it to the scene before 8 a.m. because he, the chief, didn't know how to drive the fire truck and he had to wait for someone else who could to arrive. Now, yes, someone who doesn't know how to drive a fire truck shouldn't be driving a fucking fire truck. But also, shouldn't the chief, the fire chief, even of a volunteer firefighting department, shouldn't the fire chief know how to drive the fire truck? It should also be noted that Morris wasn't some new volunteer or someone the department turned to in order to beef up the already emaciated force. No, Morris had been fire chief for eight years at the time of the Sauter fire. Given what we know now of the experience of the Fayetteville Fire Department, it shouldn't shock anyone to hear that their search of what remained of the Sauter home that morning was, quote, cursory at best, according to modern fire professionals. It's been reported that the fire department, led by Chief Morris, and assisted by a state fire marshal, searched through the ash and debris of the Sauter home for about an hour on Christmas morning, the remains still damp from the department's half-hearted attempt to at least put out the still-smoking rubble. There was nothing to be found. Not of Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, or Betty, anyway. When George heard the news, he reportedly just gaped at Morris and the other fire officials, this cannot be, he's quoted as saying. There must be something left. Something, of course, left of his children. But the fire department assured him there were no physical remains of any kind, of any of the children, to be accounted for. At 10 a.m. that morning, Moore simply suggested to the Sodders that, well, the fire must have cremated the five children who had been trapped inside the blaze. Another word here, this time about cremation. And full disclosure, obviously, I'm not a funeral director, a cremator, a pathologist, or anyone associated with the death industry. So while people with those insights would be fascinating to talk to, and I absolutely welcome the opportunity to hear their opinions on this matter, I, myself... I'm simply relaying the facts of the research that I've done about the science of cremation. And I would like to be excluded from any narrative where I get yelled at for not knowing nuanced details. Also, trigger warning if you're squeamish. So, as it was, 
cremation. In order to ensure the complete disintegration of a human body, temperatures used for cremation aim to be between 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. For anyone not using the American standard of temperature, that's between 871 and 982 degrees Celsius. This process reduces the human body to its basic elements. From cremation resource, quote, the heat dries the body, burns the skin and hair, contracts and chars the muscles, vaporizes the soft tissues, and calcifies the bones so that they will eventually crumble. The end result, then, would be skeletal remains or their fragments. We arrive at the end result of skeletal remains in a span between one to three hours, depending on factors like a body's weight, the body's size, its percentage of lean muscle to fat, that kind of idea. This exposure of the body to extreme heat is a process of combustion. That exposure is not actually the cremation itself. Cremation takes place when the remaining skeleton and or its fragments undergo a process called pulverization, which is exactly what it sounds like. The bones are pulverized, ground down to a fine powder or dust, which we then refer to as ashes. Let me just make that abundantly clear again. A body does not immediately get reduced to ash during cremation. The remains have to be pulverized in order to enter the powder state. The skeleton does not turn to ash, no matter how hot that temperature gets. The skeleton will survive. So it's interesting, then, that Fire Chief Morris would suggest such a thing to the Sodders. Sure, the fire started somewhere around 1 or 1.30 a.m., blazed through the entire house in less than an hour, and it did continue to burn throughout the night. That does a lot of damage. doesn't necessarily need to be stated. But odd, wasn't it? How when the Sodders themselves went through the house, Jenny could see, quote, remnants of various household appliances that had been found in the burned-out basement, still identifiable. Odder still that a fire chief, a man who had been serving in the capacity for eight years by 1945, odd that he would suggest that a fire would leave behind no bones, no flesh, absolutely nothing. Because that shouldn't have been the case. The skeletons, barring somehow getting pulverized, the skeleton always survives. Jenny was said to be so baffled by the assertion officials made that she would go on to perform little experiments in an attempt to understand and to possibly channel her grief. According to the Smithsonian Magazine article, The Children Who Went Up in Smoke by Karen Abbott, Jenny's experiment consisted of, quote, Burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, to see if the fire consumed them. Each time, she was left with a heap of charred bones. Combustion affects everybody differently, but even so, if small animal bones could remain, then 
How had human bones simply vanished into nothingness? Fire officials waved off the Sodder's concerns. It was a tragedy. A tragedy born of what they claimed was faulty wiring. This George took umbrage with. How could the wiring have been faulty when it was brand new and it had just been inspected and approved by the local electricity company back in the autumn? The family had had new wiring placed in the house for an updated electrical stove soon before the fire. And stranger still, if the wiring had been on the fritz that night, then why had Jenny found the lights still on and working when she woke up to a telephone call at 12.30? The fire was alleged to have started after the 1 a.m. thumps that Jenny heard on the roof. So what would have happened in the span of half an hour to blow the entire house's wiring system when the entire family was supposedly asleep? The family also recalled that in the initial phase of the blaze, when they had been standing outside in the cold, the Christmas tree lights were still blinking cheerily from inside as flames licked around it. But it was the suggestion there had been some wiring, some electricity gaff, that really stuck out to George. Because it made him remember. Made him remember two specific incidents that had taken place just a few months prior. The first incident took place in the fall of 1945, when a stranger approached the Sodder's house. George assumed the man was looking for work, possibly hoping he could be hired on to help on the small farm that they had, and he even asked about hauling work that he might get paid for. As they spoke, the man apparently walked around the back of the house and gazed up. Without any forewarning, he pointed to two fuse boxes attached to the back of the house and simply said, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday. At the time, it struck George as odd. The electric stove had just been installed. And again, the power company had approved the wiring throughout the entire house. However, he didn't think anything of it at the time. Soon after, George was approached by a local salesman, looking to add George and the family to his roster of life insurance clients. George, though, simply wasn't interested. The exchange apparently turned harsh from what we know of it. The salesman grew infuriated and yelled at him saying, quote, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. Now there's something that'll come to mind after just such an event takes place. The cogs were turning in the Sodder's heads, but they barely had time what to make of any of it or any of their initial misgivings. Fire Chief Morris claimed that since it was Christmas, a more thorough search of the property would have to wait until after the holidays, and he instructed George to leave the house as it was. That lasted all about four days. After those four days, George and Jenny couldn't stand the bleak sight of the house, and so he bulldozed over what remained, intending to make a memorial garden of sorts for the children that they believed they'd lost. The very next day, the coroner called for an inquest into the affair, and it was rectified rather quickly, on the same day, December 30th. It was declared that the fire had begun due to the faulty wiring, 
and that it was nothing more than a tragic accident. The children's death certificates were released that same day. Sitting in as jurors for the inquest, I should note, were Chief Morris. And wouldn't you know it, the local insurance salesman, the same one who had threatened George, claiming his house and children would burn because of his anti-Mussolini stance. Small towns, dark secrets. The town and the Sodders tried to move on from the tragedy, though George and Jenny were distraught to attend, too distraught to attend the funeral with five empty caskets on January 2nd, 1946. They tried, though, to move on. Tried being the operative word. Because even in their grief, the Sodders and other members of the Fayetteville community, they began to realize something just wasn't quite right here. Strange occurrences began happening as 1946 rolled on. Soon after the funerals, the long missing ladder, the one George believed that he could have climbed up and rescued his children from the attic with, was found in a ditch, roughly 75 feet away from the house. No one had any idea how it had gotten there or so far from the house. It made even less sense because George was fastidious about keeping it propped against the house. Though the coroner's inquest had declared the case a tragic accident due to electrical malfunctions, even people in Fayetteville weren't so sure that was the case. A local telephone repairman approached the Sodders with a shocking claim. It appeared that their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned out from or by the fire. Further examination seemed to prove that the wires, snipped indeed, had been the ones to the telephone and not necessarily the lights. Years later, Jenny would assert that after they found this out, no one in the family would have been able to make it out of the house if the wires controlling the lights had been cut. And it stands to reason that those weren't the cut wires, given that the Christmas lights were still working even as the fire raged. More people from the community and even surrounding areas began to approach the Sodders similarly. A neighbor came forward to state that the night of the fire, he had seen someone removing what appeared to be a block and tackle pulley system from the Sodders' property that night. He specifically thought the system was one used to lift and remove engines from cars. Was this the reason neither of George's previously working cars had worked that night and why they had failed him in such time of need? Had someone tampered with the cars in some manner? What's strange about this is that the man who did so was identified and arrested. The local even claimed that he had been the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but he denied having anything to do with the fire. Few records remain of this arrest, though, and fewer still of the man's identity. Which begs the question, why? Was this man seen stealing from the property the night of the fire? Was he ever considered a suspect? Or did police buy his claims of innocence? At least, innocence when it came to the fire.
Another witness came forward soon after, a bus driver who had passed through the road near the Sauter's house that night. And his claim was truly chilling. In the early morning hours of Christmas Day, he claimed that as he drove past, he could see people, quote, throwing balls of fire at the house. No one knew what to make of that. Had someone purposely set the house on fire? But why? And furthermore, how? What could have those balls of fire even been? It was a few months after learning of this account that the family found something in the wreckage and the beginning stages of their memorial garden. Baby Sylvia had been playing on the ground near the site as the other members of the family visited when she came upon something strange in the ground. It was hard, dark green in color, and had a rubber ball-like shape to it. When she showed her parents, George believed he knew immediately what it was, especially combined with Jenny's claims that she had heard a loud thump on the roof before the fire began. It looked to him like what his daughter had found was the remnants of a pineapple bomb, a type of hand grenade used in the army. Was it possible? Had someone really purposely set the house on fire? It was when Jenny learned of a similar house fire that occurred around the same time as their own that her convictions solidified. She'd begun to think that, despite her gut feeling, perhaps her children had died that night in the fire. Perhaps it was both a tragedy and a freak accident. But then she read a newspaper article that changed everything she had been questioning. In the paper, she read a story about a three-story house which held seven members of a family, and it had gone up in smoke not long after their Christmas Day fire. And all seven had died, established because all seven of the family members' skeletons were found. At this, Jenny and George were convinced. In their minds, there was no questioning it further. Their five children weren't dead. They were missing. Now the question, though, became, why? As the questions piled up, so too did something else, alleged sightings of the children. From early days after the fire, people came forward with claims that they had seen the children. One woman claimed she saw, quote, missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. A motel operator 50 miles away came forward to say that she'd seen the five children the morning after the fire, somewhere between Fayetteville and Charleston. According to the Smithsonian piece, this woman told police, quote, I served them breakfast. There was a car with Florida license plates there, too. Another tied to Charleston, and another sighting cropped up soon after. A woman working at a hotel in the city claimed that she recognized the children after seeing their photos in the newspaper. But the children she saw in the flesh, they numbered four, not five. In her statement to police, she recalled, quote, The children were accompanied by two men and two women, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. 
They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. Threats about George's comments regarding Mussolini, the family's Italian heritage, George's mysterious departure from Sardinia as a teenager. It made the family wonder. Had the mafia come for the Sauter family? Many followers of the Sauter disappearance over the years have bones to pick when it comes to the idea of mafia involvement. Some believe that it makes no sense, given the intense patriotism ringing through the nation in the middle of the World War. Others say it would have been a social death sentence to back Mussolini publicly, even though we know George's comments had upset people when he spoke out against Il Duce. Retribution and revenge aren't uncommon concepts in the organized crime world, but the Italian community in Fayetteville was strong, yes, but was it tied more to their old world than it was to their patriotic American one? It's hard to say. The Sodders, at this point, they felt left to their own devices. They weren't impressed with local law enforcement's efforts. They'd been turned down by J. Edgar Hoover himself from the FBI because local authorities hadn't allowed the FBI to be brought in. And so they reached out to a private investigator located in Gali, a man named C.C. Tinsley. Tinsley was an interesting character. Through his work, he made several discoveries that he shared with the Sodders, including that the same insurance salesman who had threatened George was on the coroner's inquest that had deemed the fire an accident. But it was a little piece of gossip, a true incident of a little birdie singing a tune in his ear that really caught his attention. The rumor went like this. Through his P.I. grapevine, Tinsley learned of a local minister who had heard Fire Chief Morris's confession recently. And his confession had been let slip. Apparently, Morris had been confessing to the sin of lying. Because, as he told his confessor, he had found something at the Sodders' house when he finally arrived on Christmas morning. Quote, he confessed that he had discovered a heart in the ashes. He then had hidden it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Allegedly, the priest confirmed the rumor to George, who, with Tinsley in tow, confronted Morris, who almost immediately gave up the jig. He showed the two men where he had buried the heart, and upon unearthing it, they brought it to a local funeral director to examine it. It took only a few minutes for the consensus to be confirmed. It was not, as Morris had said, a heart. It was fresh beef liver, completely untouched by any sort of fire. It's unclear how Morris explained away all of that as he stood before a funeral director, a grieving father, and a private investigator. But from that, a new rumor emerged. 
one the Sodders didn't confront Morris about this time. According to the Smithsonian article, the new rumor was that, quote, the fire chief had told others that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all, that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. Interesting thought that. Because why would a fire chief want to put an end to an investigation, one seemingly born out of an accident? By 1949, more sightings had arisen, and more frustration was bubbling. George investigated almost every sighting that was relayed to him, including a rather heart-rending one that led him to a school in New York where a girl he had spotted in a magazine attended. In her magazine photo, he thought she seemed to resemble one of his missing daughters, Betty, and he drove from West Virginia to Manhattan to meet the girl, but was barred from doing so by her understandably concerned parents. Determined to do something, George connected with a pathologist in D.C. through Detective Tinsley, who agreed to this new something. They would excavate. Excavate the site where the five Sauter children had allegedly died. Oscar B. Hunter, the D.C. pathologist, led an extremely thorough search, much more thorough than any of the original ones from four years prior. At this time, they did discover something. Some things. There were some damaged coins, a dictionary that was falling apart due to its sustained fire damage, and bones. They found bones. Shards of them, but bones nonetheless. As the Smithsonian was the institute to examine the discoveries, I'll let them speak from their own report about how strange these discovered bones were. Quote, The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy the oldest missing solder child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation. The vertebrae showed no evidence that they had been exposed to fire, according to the report, and it, quote, is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement of the house. Nothing that the house reportedly burned for only about half an hour or so the report said that, quote, one would expect to find the full skeletals, skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae. The bones, the report concluded, were most likely in the supply of fill dirt George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. No one could say how any bones, though, would have gotten into that fill dirt. For years, the excavation was the last big lead about what might have happened to the missing children. Sure, there were still sightings throughout the 50s and 60s, 
A woman in St. Louis claimed Martha had been held at a convent. A bar patron out in Texas claimed that they heard other patrons shiftily discussing that Christmas Eve long ago, and their conversation was incriminating in his mind. There was even a tip that came in claiming that one of Jenny's own brothers was holding the children somewhere in Florida. As the tips came, so too did the formal investigatory help stop. In 1950, local law enforcement closed the case, deeming it, quote, hopeless. The FBI stopped investigating two years later in 1952, having hoped that their jurisdiction with interstate kidnapping might lead to information, but to no avail. Even Detective Tinsley was said to have simply faded into the background. That same year, in 1952, the family erected a highway billboard sign along Route 16, featuring pictures of each missing child and a plaintive cry for help, rallied by a $5,000 reward, which was soon doubled. And for years, the billboard stood. The dark-haired and solemn-eyed Sodder Five staring down at passing motorists. Until 1967 when a letter arrived. Two letters, actually. And they had to do with the missing Sauter boys. The first letter arrived at the Sauter house in 1967, and it hailed from Houston. Within the letter, a woman had written claims that a man had confessed secrets of his life to her while a little too drunk. And his big secret was that he was actually... Louis Sauter. She further claimed that she believed Louis and Maurice were living somewhere in Texas, though she couldn't say where. When George and one of his son-in-laws, George Paxton, arrived in Texas to meet this woman, though, she wouldn't. For whatever reason, they weren't able to meet with the woman who claimed that she had met Louis. Texas police were eventually able to track down the two men, but they denied it all. They claimed that They weren't the two missing Sauter sons. This particular incident, though, is said to have haunted George for the rest of his life with lingering doubts about the men's denial. Later that same year, another letter arrived, but this one centered solely around Lewis. Jenny discovered the letter in the family mailbox, confused what something stamp marked from Central City, Kentucky was doing in there. There wasn't even a return address that she could reference. She opened it, though, and out fell a letter, as well as a photograph. In the photo, a man who would have been in his late 20s, early 30s, stared back. He had dark hair, dark eyes, and angular face. He was wearing a white shirt that seemed to be a button-down, and it appeared that he had a cross on a chain around his neck. The letter was simple if utterly nonsensical. It read, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. I, 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 boys. A, nine, zero, one, three, two, or three, five. Absolutely nobody knew what to make of the message, but the family felt sure about one thing. That photograph was of their missing Lewis. 
The family hired a new detective to head to Central City to see what leads might be generated, but this detective allegedly took the money and ran. Certain sleuths of the web have since ascertained that the 90132 might stand for a zip code, an out-of-date one at this point, but it was one to Palermo, Italy, all the same. The family was convinced that this was a recent photo of Lewis, so they added it to the Route 16 billboard, but they refrained from including any information about the letter, the central city stamp, anything that might put Louis' danger, life in danger. They also reportedly framed a reproduction of it and hung it above their fireplace. The next year, George admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail something no one could begrudge him for. He was frustrated. It's, quote, like hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further. Time is running out for us. But we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. A year after he gave that interview, in 1969, George Sauter died never knowing what happened to his five missing children. Jenny followed 20 years later in 1989, having allegedly worn mourning black for the duration of her life after Christmas 1945. As of April 2019, baby Sylvia, 76-year-old Sylvia at the time, was the only remaining survivor of the Sauter fire, the last of the Sauter children. The biggest question surrounding this case asks, of course, what happened to the missing Sauter children all those Christmases ago? It's within the other questions, the many, many that cropped up throughout this case, though. I think it's within those questions we'll be able to answer what happened to Maurice, Martha, Louis, Betty, and Jenny Sauter on Christmas 1945. So let's start asking them. Question number one. Why did George Sauter arrive in America under such strange circumstances? Why was he the only one in his family to arrive and stay in America? Was his brother always planning to return to Italy, or was it a spur-of-the-moment decision? If he was planning to return... Why come all the way and even go through customs just to go back immediately? And if not, then what drove the older brother to immediately return to Italy? Did George ever hear from anyone in his family again after he arrived in America, or did he effectively lose contact with everyone? Was there anyone in his family left in Sardinia to even contact? What happened in Sardinia that made him never speak of his youth there? What happened in the Sauter home after Jenny and George went to bed on Christmas Eve? How late did the younger children stay up? Why didn't they complete their regular nightly chores, like shutting off the lights, closing the blinds and curtains, and locking the front door? Did Maurice and Louis even attend to their chores of bringing in the cows and feeding the chickens? If not... Why? 
Did the children assume Marion would take care of the inside chores of shutting off the lights, blinds, and locking the front door? If they did, why? Did she tell them that she would? Was Marion even awake when the younger children were supposed to have gone to bed? Did Marion ever even see her younger siblings go off to bed that night, or did she fall asleep beforehand? Why don't we know exactly how the rest of the night played out after 10 p.m.? Who was the woman who called the house at 12.30 a.m.? Who was the man that she named, and why hasn't that name ever been publicly shared? What was it that Jenny heard hit the roof at 1 a.m.? If Jenny went back to bed a few minutes after hearing the noise on the roof at 1 a.m. and then woke up to the smoke coming into the bedroom at 1.30, what time did the fire actually start? How did the fire actually start? Why were both the neighbors and the local tavern's phones down that night? Was it coincidence or coordinated? Why did the Fayetteville Fire Department treat the fire with more urgency? I just need to ask this for myself. Did Chief Morris really not know how to drive the fire truck despite having been chief for eight years by 1945? Even though it was Christmas morning, why was the fire department so careless with their search of the rubble the morning of the fire? Why did they so fervently put forth the concept of the faulty wiring theory? Why was Morris so positive the fire would have reduced all of the skeletons to ash, despite it being almost rationally impossible? Who was the man who pointed at the fuse boxes in the fall and claimed that they would start a fire? Why did he do so? Was he part of a plan? Why exactly was the insurance salesman so angry at George? And why did he make such bizarre, but damn near prophetic, threats to him? Was he a Mussolini supporter? Did the salesman have something to do with the fire? Was he ever investigated by police? Why was he allowed on the coroner's inquest? Why was the ladder found 75 feet away from the house down in an embankment? Who put it there and why? Was it ever determined why the two trucks the Sodders owned didn't start during the fire despite having worked perfectly fine throughout the day? Was someone trying to cut all of the wires to the Sodder house? Or was the man seen stealing from the scene truthful when he said that he just wanted to cut the phone wire? But then, why cut the phone wire? Why steal the pulley system? Did he have something to do with the fire or the cars not starting? Was he ever considered a suspect by the police? Or did they buy his claims of innocence? If the bus driver's account is accurate, who was throwing the balls of fire on the roof of the house and why? Was the pineapple bomb that Sylvia found months after the fire ever examined by police or taken into evidence? Was it, in fact, a hand grenade? If it was, was it used to cause the fire? Was it the source of the loud thump that Jenny heard that night? With so many sightings over the years, the one that stands out to me is the one from the hotel in Charleston. 
was the woman right in saying that she had, in fact, seen some of the solder children with Italian men and women? If she was, then why had she only seen four and not all five missing children? It needs to be asked, who was the missing one? It also needs to be asked, what the fuck was the deal with the beef liver that Morris allegedly planted at the solder house? Was he really trying to assuage the solder parents and convince them that the children had died? Why was he so insistent on trying to convince them of that theory? Why wouldn't he be interested in making sure the case was as thoroughly as investigated as possible? Did Morris have anything to do with the events on Christmas Day, 1945? Why did he lie and claim that he had found a heart, knowing most likely full well that it was a beef liver? When did he plant the organ near the site? How did he explain away this lie? Why did local law enforcement refuse to let the FBI assist on the case? How did the bone shards found in 1949 get to the site of the solder fire? And whose bones are they? Did the woman from Houston actually meet Louis Sauter? Why wouldn't she meet with George and his son-in-law when they showed up? Were the two men who Texas police caught up with lying about their identities? If they were, and they were Louis and Maurice Sauter, why did they lie? Who sent the second letter containing the photograph? What does any of that letter mean? Who is Brother Frankie? Is the string of numbers at the bottom a zip code? Is it the old zip code for Palermo, Italy? And if so, what does it mean? What did Central City, Kentucky have to do with the letter? Why was it postmarked from there? Was it actually Lewis in the picture? If it was, why didn't he ever come forward or send another letter? Did any of the missing solder children survive that night? If they did, why did they never come forward? Were they kidnapped, held for ransom? Or were they killed elsewhere? If the solder children didn't survive, then where the hell are their remains, and how would all five of their skeletons been so thoroughly calcified and then somehow pulverized? What did the people of Fayetteville in 1945 know about the case? And what was kept hidden by townspeople? Did someone in Fayetteville orchestrate the fire? Why? And how would they have remained undetected, or maybe protected, all of these years? Are any of the other missing solder children still alive? If so, where are they and what happened to them? What happened to all five of the missing solder children? This is a story that began in a small town. It's since morphed, grown, and expanded more than anyone probably could have imagined back in 1945. But at the heart of it, it's a story that asks one crucial question, even 75 years later. What happened to the missing 
solder children. If you ask me, nothing is ever out of the realm of possibility, not at least when it comes to this case. There are those who are convinced the children never made it out of the house that cold December night. Others wholeheartedly believe the children were kidnapped, abducted. Some believe that they were forced into unregulated adoptions, taken as ransom by retaliatory mafia members, and on and on and on. Still others wonder if it really wasn't a crime after all. If it was, as the fire officials said so many times, simply an accident. A tragic one, but an accident. As some say, no body, no crime. No body, no crime. But it's the lack of bodies actually the indicator that we are, in fact, even so many years later, witness to a crime. The thing that strikes me most is when you get right down to it, it's the bones. It seems to almost defy science, the idea that five skeletons, fragments, shards, anything, that those skeletons would have been so completely and damn near inexplicably destroyed that night. The skeleton always survives. Sylvia went on to have a family of her own, and she had a daughter, one she named Jenny. Sylvia does what she can these days to help research, investigate, follow leads, and otherwise make sure that the story of her missing siblings is always retold. According to Jenny, her mother, quote, promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die. Here's the telling the story of the missing solder children and ensuring that it's one that never dies. And here's that infallible thing called hope. Because, like I said, if you ask me, nothing is ever out of the realm of possibility. Not in a case like this. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question-loaded story to tell you. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkashellpodcast to see what level of support might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs... One dollar. You can support Da and the work that I do here for just one dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word too. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasthellpodcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to darkasthellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.